Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verses 8 through 12 or less. Over the past several weeks through our study of 1 Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter has been encouraging and reminding the church to be in submission to the various human institutions in the unbelieving world that surrounds the church. And the reason... This is to be our attitude is that, first of all, it is what Christ modeled for us. And secondly, that as we put our hope in God, the light, the lost around us might see Christ in us as our hope is in the Lord and as we seek to glorify God through our lives and our actions. And so I find it fitting that as we come to today and the pinnacle of kind of our Christmas season, uh, we, that we have been uh, speaking about the theme of life. We've been speaking about the theme of the life and the hope that we now live and we have in Christ in the midst of a Christ-rejecting culture. And so it's very fitting that our lives in Christ now shine like a light in the darkness They shine like a light in the darkness in the middle of um, a culture that does reject Christ, although there's the the surface type of, um, hey, you know, let's let's have Christmas, let's all get along and maul each other at Walmart and all these types of things that go on. But really, that the lives that we live as Christians might project, might proclaim the true message of God's love this Christmas season. There are a lot of elements as I look at Christmas and um, Christ coming into the world that we're blessed to focus on as we celebrate Christmas. And I think about these, every time we kind of come to a holiday, it's interesting that we can, um, that we can kind of look at different aspects of the Christmas story and focus on them because it's so rich and so, so deep. We can focus on the humility of Christ being born as stable, and placed in a manger, I mean, that's, that's a whole theme of itself. We can focus on the shepherds and how God involves the humble in his plans. We can focus on maybe Gabriel, um, you know, the angel and his ancient role in heralding the, uh, the coming Messiah. Or we could speak of the wise men and each of their gifts and what they represent Uh, We could speak of Mary and focus on the virgin birth and all the aspects of that. We could focus on the multiple Old Testament prophecies concerning everything about where Jesus would be born and and he would be born of a virgin and all these different prophecies Uh, or the fact that uh, God came down from all eternity and took on flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1. And so there's just, just tons of different directions you can go in Christmas Um, in the Christmas season, and so there are many truths and themes that we could focus on this morning, Uh, but the scriptures all focus on Christ coming into the world for a purpose, and I I just find it totally fitting that where we are in this section of scripture, you might not look, it might not look like it from surface value, Um, where we are in 1 Peter, it's focusing on the life that Christ came in the world to give us. Christ came into the world to give you life, eternal life. What does that look like? It's not just about checking out of this earth, although that is going to happen, and and, 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 and the life that we have in eternity, but that life starts now. It's manifested now 
in, in us, in these clay vessels. It's happening right now. Jesus came into the world to save mankind and to change our very nature into his. In other words, Christ came into the world so that we might live through him. And when a person has been convicted by the Holy Spirit over their sin, and in an act of repentance you turn and and you, and you cry out to God to save you, when you trust in Jesus' death in your place, when you trust not only in his death, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he rose again the third day, you find out that you are born again, you're changed. God does something in your spirit. He makes you new. He moves into your heart. He not only doesn't move into your heart, he, he makes you brand new. He unites you with Christ. And now you have this new life, this new birth. The Bible calls it being born again. And your life is now wrapped up in Christ. And now just like Christ who is raised from the dead, you too are raised from the dead. Your old life is buried in the ground and now we live and we follow after Jesus Christ. The old person uh, is buried and gone and now Christ lives and our lives are, are wrapped up. They're united with him and, and it manifests itself and, and how we live. And now some of us have had radical transformations right off the bat and, and that's an amazing thing and, and God does do that. There are things that just drop right off our radar like we were this and now we are that. But what we often see is the, the constant transformation in someone's life over a lifetime, that they start to change into the image of Christ as Christ kind of peels away the layers of the onion to reveal who they truly are in Christ. And it just, and, and as time goes on, someone becomes a little less honorary and more loving, and you just see these things start to develop in someone, you're going, you are not the person you used to be. And it's not through self-modification. It's not through, you know, I just tried hard and worked it out. I mean, Christ just grows. As you just love Jesus and you're just following him and you're just falling on his face, like, oh, God, change me. I'm a moron. You know, I mean, those are my prayers. That's how, I don't even King James it. I mean, that's just who it is. And, and, and he does. He starts to answer those prayers. And you go, yeah, Lord, I want to be more like you, but I have no capacity to do that. And he goes, okay, well, here's step one. And he gives you something to step out in faith. And, and then you obey him and, and he begins to change you one day at a time. And it's an amazing process. And the world around us begins to see Christ in us when this happens, when we're born again. When his desires become our desires and his mission becomes our mission and his love is now our love and that love will never end, amen? amen. That's the church, that's the picture of the church as he is preparing for himself a spotless bride. And this is why Jesus came into the world. Uh, This is the gift God has come to give through Christ, new life. That's the message. Yes, Christ came into the world. He he was a baby in a manger and all these different types of stories, but he actually came for a purpose and a reason so that where he is, you may be also. that you would share in his life. And this is really the heart of the message, why Jesus came into the world. As 1 John 4, 9 says, which will be our text for tonight's candlelight service, you don't want to miss it because my message is going to be 15 minutes. Not even football time. I'm going to try to make it 15 minutes. It's going to be, pray for that. Fast. Well, don't fast. It's Christmas, but anyways. 
But 1 John 4, 9 says, says, this is how God showed his love among us. How did God show his love among us? It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Why? That we. Erase the word we, even though it is connected to us, but put your name in there. That your name might live through him. That you might live through him, that we together might live through him. And that's really the heart of the Christmas message, that Christ came into the world to come into you, into your heart, into your life, that you might live through him. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Peter's speaking to the church and he says, Submit to every earthly authority, to government, to slaves, Slaves, uh, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, consider and submit to your wives. Why? Because our hope is in Christ, in his promise to deliver you on that day, because you have the life of Christ in you. Like Christ, you can now persevere through all of these temporary circumstances, some difficult at times, so that the lost might see the life in you. We're no different in the world when we claw and scratch our way to the top. But it is incredibly different from the world when although we have the position of sons and daughters of the kings of, of kings and lord of lords and we are rulers in the next age. We will judge angels. We take the form of a servant as our hope is in Christ. It's totally different. And so although we have authority and although we are all these things in Christ, that when we run into these circumstances, what do we do? Claw and scratch and try to get our way or do we humbly submit and serve ourselves even in difficult circumstances? Does that ring a bell to anyone about someone else who did that? His name is Jesus. And let's just say he had a very high position. There's none higher. And so, we are submitted to and committed to and unified in Christ according to his truth that he took on the form of a servant. And so Peter, he turns to the church, because Christ is in you, because you have this life, because you have this hope of salvation, he turns to him and says in verse eight, finally all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, This is verse eight. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Peter is is sharing with us in verse eight what our new life in Christ actually looks like. You know, he's talking about submitting to one another, submit to the government, submit to, uh, you know, slaves to masters, wives, husbands, husbands to wives. Now he goes, now this is what it looks like in your relationships with one another. Finally, the church. He was, like, he was talking kind of in general about the relationships to those who are unsaved in those first passages. Now he's kind of talking to the church. He's saying, hey, what about you guys? Although it does extend to those outside. Finally, y'all, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And he gives us five ways that God's new life is manifested in our relationships with believers and non-believers alike. So if you want to know what our new life looks like when uh, in Christ, this is kind of 
encapsulates a little bit of it. It's when the, Christ, when, the, when the church is filled with believers, people who believe in Jesus Christ, but not only believe, but who live it out, meaning, meaning they're like-minded, they're sympathetic, they love one another, they're compassionate with one another, and they're humble towards one another. Now, what do these things mean? What does that mean? He first says of all, they were to be like-minded. And that, the, the means, basically, like-minded means to be of one mind or to be harmonious. That's, that's kind, of, kind of the word behind it. In other words, we are to be in harmony with one another. We're to be submitted to and committed to and unified in Christ according to his truth. How do you be harmonious with one another? And, and this is a real key, I think, in marriage. The, the way that you're harmonized with one another is that you're harmonized with the Lord. It really is. In other words, you have an authority greater than your own self. <laughs> you know, you find that you're out of harmony in a marriage when, quite often when, when you're not getting what you want. And let me say that that just happens in marriage or in relationships, in all these things. But when you're in harmony with the Lord, when you're in harmony with his truth, when, you do it, when we're, we're listening to what our Lord says and, and then our spouse is listening to the, what the Lord says, there's harmony in between this. And notice he's talking to Christians here. He's saying that we should be in harmony with one another, not because we always get what we want, but because we're in harmony with what he says. And so we're constantly fighting not to gain things on each other. We're constantly kind of outserving one another. <laughs> That's a cool environment, right? We're trying to out-humble each other, so to speak. We're out-serving each other. And so that's what he says there. Be in harmony with one another. And the result when each of us is in tune with his word and his spirit, which are the same, is that our lives are not only in tune with him, but we are with one another. The scriptures in 1 Corinthians, they speak of this unity when he gives the analogy of the church being like a body. Remember that? He says, you're kind of like a body. And he says, you're, you're, you're diverse, but you're to be unified. And, and the way that a body is unified is it does what the head says. Amen? And we went, th- we went through the whole teaching on the church, and we learned that the head of the body is Jesus Christ. In other words, when, when we, as the various parts of the body, do what he says, we harmonize. And we know in our own lives when our bodies are not in harmony. Our own, our own physical body is not in harmony. How many of you have unharmonious parts of your body? Yeah, the older you get, the less harmony there is. I mean, quite of when you're first born, you're just kind of learning out the harmonies. Then you kind of get it for a little while, and then you lose it. Like, arm starts to decide to do its own thing. Um, and that's kind of the picture. And one of the things is, you know, I've got my guitar up here, which I enjoy very much. Uh, one of the things that, about my guitar is, as a musician, um, you know, like I'm playing my guitar, and, and you can tell when there's harmony. Right? Now, if I take one of these things right here, they're called strings. Now I play that same thing. I even tune that room. Sorry. That's the same chord. And we're going, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the world's going, 
Yuck. Amen? Amen? All right, cool. Sorry. Not really. <laughs> I was like, I get to play my guitar. Sorry, I had to get my fix there. Are you harmonized with the Lord? You know, you know what we sound like sometimes? We just sound totally uh, just kind of, the world looks at us and they go, yeah, you're proclaiming something, but it doesn't match up. And I've been struggling with that lately. As I've been teaching through this stuff, I've realized I am out of tune. Lord, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Lord, let my life match what I, what I teach. And, and that's difficult. Let there not be many teachers among you because you have a, have a stricter judgment, right? But I mean, with us as a church, we want to be in tune. And, that, and it's a, not just for the sake of, yay, look at us. It's look at him, his life in us, Amen. And so tune ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to his truth. We are to be um, unified with one another. We're also to be sympathetic. Not only do we unify in the truth, but we're also to be sympathizers with each other, sympathize with the pain and the joy of others. That's what that means. In other words, we feel for one another. When someone is hurting, we hurt. When someone rejoices, rejoice. And I think I see a lot of this in our church. I think there are, there are people especially gifted in this area in our fellowship that I'm totally blessed by who really just, when someone's hurting, they flock to them. They feel their hurt. When someone's overjoyed, they feel their joy. And I think that is, and, and what a gift from the Lord. But we're not just gifted in that area. We're called to that, each of us. And, I, and I've had to have many prayers. Lord, help me to have, have, help me to understand what this person is going through because I don't care. Anybody else had those prayers before or just me? Learn to pray that way. Lord, I know, I know how I feel doesn't match with what you say, so change my heart, Lord. Change my heart. And he does. He's faithful. He starts to do that in our lives. And so Jesus was our example in this. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weakness, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, the Lord lived a life in the body. He was able to understand what we were going through, yet was without sin. And I don't want to go into the deep theology of, of that at the moment. But I do, but just realize that the Lord is the great sympathizer with us in our weakness. We're to be the same. And, and I'm going to kind of cut that short because we're going to come back to a similar word in just a second. But we're also to love one another, Peter says. The NIV translates this as, as love one another, but more accurately, we should have brotherly love towards one another. That's, that's the actual phrase there, brotherly love. The Greek word is kind of Philadelphia, which is where we get the word for Philadelphia, brotherly love. But this refers to the love of a brother or one closely related. If you've been born again in Christ, you've been born into the family of God. And guess what? You now have a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ. And God calls us and actually has put in us a brotherly love for one another. And that's what he's talking about. That we are to have a brotherly love for one another. That should be our mark, uh, the mark of the church. We're also called to be compassionate or kind-hearted towards one another. It's translated both ways. This is similar to sympathetic, but it's deeper. The word often means bowels or intestines. I hope that helps out. 
the idea is that we're to feel what our brothers and sisters feel to our core. It deeply affects us. The other time this word is used in the Bible, it's only used one other time, although it's translated the same word, but the Greek word is, is used again in Ephesians 4.32, where it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, and here's the context, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So that's the context. Our compassion for one another is, is kind of around the context of being able to be sympathetic one, towards one another, deeply feeling one another's needs when, when we need forgiveness. In other words, the, the reason why I'm to have this deep feeling of understanding with someone else who needs to be forgiven is because guess what I needed? And God provided for me. I don't know about you, but I'm in deep need of Christ's constant cleansing in my life. Yes, positionally I've been saved, but I tell you what, how many of you, uh, like Peter, need to be washed? <laughs> Amen. And have our consciences cleansed from de dead work, so to speak. But um, that's what that talks about. It's a, it's, it's a deeper, uh, it's a deep, deeper than sympathy. So the context is that we're compelled to forgive one another just as Christ forgave us. And so as we look at our brothers and sisters in sin, they are in need of forgiveness. And, and we can understand that plight because we have been forgiven by God. And so this is what is different about the church. This is what different is different about those who have been born again. We actively seek out each other. We care about each other. We love one another. We forgive one another. We care about one another. That's the love of Christ in us. There's to be that heartfelt compassion for one another. And by the way, this is for non-believers as well. This is for non-believers as well. Jesus, in Matthew 23, 37, if you remember this, Jesus cried out, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings and you are not willing. Christ cried out, longing to forgive them, longing to, to he just wished they would come to them and change their heart and change their mind. And this is the heart we're to have for our enemies. Notice, these are people who kill the prophets and are rejecting Christ. What about those people in our lives that reject us? The compassion that Christ had, even with those who rejected him out, outright, outright, is ours. And so we're to be like-minded, sympathetic, we're to love one another, compassionate. And, and lastly, so he says there in verse 8, uh, be humble-minded, be humble. Humble-minded is the word. Philippians 2.3 gives us a broader view of what is meant by humble-minded. If you uh, check out Philippians 2.3, you can flip there. Uh, it's left in your Bibles, Philippians 2.3. You can make a note. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How many underline that as your life verse? It's a good one to underline. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And so humility is wrapped up 
in our position before God in others. That's what humility is wrapped up in. And so we're not to seek to exalt ourselves, but rather deny ourselves in lifting up and serving one another. And Paul goes on in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. I just love the rest of us because here's the context of our humility. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Have this aim with one another. This is, this is how we're to relate to one another. Ready? Who being in the very nature God, now it's not saying you have a God complex, looking into him as the example, who being in the very nature God, Jesus was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, verse seven, he made himself what? Nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus was and is God, and yet he humbled himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't leverage his position for his own advantage. He leveraged his position for our advantage. That's what he's getting at. That's what Peter's kind of getting at. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what he's called you to? The great truth, the salvation that is at hand, that is yours in Christ. If you just knew that, you'd be like so confident in what's going on around you. The hardships or whatever. And he used that position not to lord it over, but to come under and lift up and save people. He says, in the same way, you go live your lives. As those who will inherit salvation, lay down your lives in such a way that others will see it. They'll see the gift and they will come to Christ. And that's the way that God draws people. It's not through our gifts and talents and and abilities per se. The world's got plenty of that and they can outdo us in all of it. It's through our humility and our nothingness, just like Christ. God says his power is made perfect in our weakness. So be weak, not false humility. Let's serve. Humble yourself is what it is. And Jesus, obviously, is our example of that. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so really, this is the Christmas story. God humbling himself to death. God humbled himself to death to save us and to give us life that we may live. And so now we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, church, in that we humble ourselves. We are the king's kids, rulers with him in the age to come, yet now we humble ourselves for a time so that some would see Christ in us and live as they place their faith in Christ and his finished work upon the cross. And Philippians goes on, so just so you know the rest of the story, oh great, just humble yourselves. That's, that's a, there's no hope in that. Now listen, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And really this, this is the message of 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 Christmas, Christ humbled himself for our sake and then he was exalted. We humble ourselves 
and let people see Christ in us. And one day, we will be exalted. And so now we humble ourselves as Christ now lives in us, that light of the world that is in us, who is now exalted. And when Christ returns with a shout, when he returns with a shout, we will be raised, we will be exalted, we will be lifted up. And whatever situation you find yourself in, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> so the life of Christ is manifested in believers in the way that we live with one another. We're like-minded, sympathetic, loving one another, compassionate, and humble. And this is a work of the Spirit. So let me ask, how's that going for you? I already confessed my sin. Pray that the Lord would work in our hearts in this, amen? And then he says, and he just kind of gives you, a, in verse nine, he just kind of gives you a, a, a giant kind of like overarching understanding of what he's talking about. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with what? Say it. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Christ has changed us from people who, from, uh, from a people who curse to a people who bless, amen? And that's a testimony to the world of Christ in you. They've got enough people cursing them and cursing at them. That's the world around us, amen? But what happens when a Christian gets eviscerated with evil and cursing, what comes out? Here, we are called to not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On contrary, pay every evil with blessing. And so how many times do you find yourself directly or indirectly on the receiving end of evil and results, not because you were foolish, but because you're a Christian, because you love the Lord Jesus. Let me say, if you shine the light in darkness, they're gonna know it, they're not gonna like it, right? So, we no longer repay what is given. We no longer repay what is given. Is that speaking to anybody this morning? How many have been giving it back? <laughs> yeah. No longer repay can be translated also stop retaliating. It can be a command. Not the great suggestion. He can say that he could have very well been dealing with a church that was retaliating because they were under some pretty harsh circumstances. They were getting persecuted and they were letting their persecutors know what's up. What do they do? Peter says, stop retaliating. But it's not just about stopping. It's about starting, right? This is Christianity. This is a new life. This is new life. You stop evil and start righteousness. That's kind of it, because Christ is in you. Obey the Lord. And what does he say? On the contrary, pay evil with blessing. 
because to this you were called so that you may inherit blessing. We repay evil with blessing. The word evil has the idea of someone with a wicked disposition. Wicked disposition. It's also fitting. Anybody of you know any Grinches lately? That's kind of like the, the idea, a wicked disposition there. You know, what, what do you do with Grinches? I love that, how they didn't retaliate in, in Dr. Dr. Who's, Dr. Dr. whatever his name is. <laughs> Dr. Zeus? Thank you. No, Zeus. I'm just playing with you. I know this stuff. <clears throat> I did. <laughs> Children, <laughs> guard your minds when you're young. But when they use wicked words towards you, repay them with blessing instead of a curse. What does that mean? Insult, the word insult means an, an abusive railing against. When someone's abusively railing against you, and, and, and the word curse means to revile or to give evil back. Did you notice the word revile has the word evil in it? Don't re-evil them. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of the idea. Don't, don't repackage evil. Don't re-gift evil. Don't give it back. Don't revile. So we don't pay back. What do we do? We bless instead. This means we don't speak evil of them in return. Ouch. Not only do we not do evil, we don't speak evil. Is that the way the world works? Oh, no. How many have a Facebook account? How many of you just like go down to the comments section on something and it's just like, oh my gosh, trolls unite. And then you see like Christians in there going for it. I'm like, what are you doing? Christians that you love and know even. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, you have heard this, it was said to you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've been heard. That's what you've been told. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Love and pray for that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Peter says the same. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You're children of God. Peter said, because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. We are those who inherit all the promises of everlasting life. And if you look at this, it's really interesting because we act like what we're inheriting. Those who are born again are inheriting a blessing and so therefore we bless. Those who are inheriting destruction and eternal life and evil, that's what they dish out. That's the picture there. And now in verse 10, uh, Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16, which is where we close. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Notice these are not all great options. For the eyes, this is the why, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's on those who turn their tongue from evil and from deceitful speech. He's on those who um, turn from evil and actually do good. He's He's looking at them. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear is attentive to their prayer. How does, you ever wonder why your prayer life is all messed up? What are you doing? 
How are you speaking? How are you interacting with those around you, especially brothers and sisters? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a quote from King David, who for 10 years was being pursued by King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him for 10 years. He was running around and hiding in caves and it several times came close to having his life taken. King Saul chucked spears at him whenever he could. I mean, there was some bad stuff going on. King Saul became an ungodly king who was consumed with his own glory and what people thought of him rather than the command of God, the commands of God. He was jealous of David for many reasons. And here David is with all the reasons of the world to get upset and to start bad-mouthing the king and to start a Twitter feed and start going, you know what I mean? He had all these reasons to do these things and what, did he, what does he do? He's running for his life. He's running from Saul for years and from the Philistines. And through it all, he trusts in the Lord's deliverance and would not speak evil of King Saul. Yet when he had the chance to kill him a couple times, when God delivered him into his hands a couple times, he cut the hem off of Saul's garment in a cave. Saul's going to the bathroom. He walks up behind him. He's going to kill him, but he decides not to. Uh, all his men are like, the Lord's delivered him. The Lord's delivered him. Take him out. What would you do? This guy's been trying to kill you for a long time. Known, you know, it would have been a great victory. He cuts the hem of his robe off, and then Saul goes and leaves the cave. David comes out their distance away, and he goes, listen, the Lord delivered you into my hands. And he starts speaking how he would not, you know, curse the Lord's anointed. He trusted in the Lord. Now, David was anointed king, Right? He could have taken his position. He could have done what he done did, but he didn't. So what, what did he do? He trusted in the Lord. He humbled himself even under difficult circumstances. Whoever would love life, and he gets back in a cave and he says this to his band of misfits, and they truly were. He says, whoever would love life and see good days must Keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord, God's watching. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord against those who do evil. See, it wasn't about Saul's evil for King David. It was about God's glory. That's what it's about, church, his glory. His glory in your life. We radiate His praises by our lives, our actions, our mouths, and what we do. Our lives are a testimony to Him. And our hearts know it when we're not. The Holy Spirit weighs on us like a ton of bricks until we confess and we repent and we turn to the Lord and his forgiveness is more than adequate. If that's where you are this morning, let him flood over you this morning. Let him change you from the inside out deeply. Wrestle with him like Jacob until you're a changed man, until you're a changed woman. He will do it. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
Don't repay evil for evil. Close your mouth, but do not just refrain from evil. Do good and pursue it. Because God, his eyes are on the righteous. That's you. And his ear is attentive to your prayer. But his face is against those who do evil. That's clear. And this is the message of of Christmas. (laughs) God changes men's hearts. God changes women's hearts. He changes our lives. He gives us his life. So church, we were all in that camp, in the King Saul camp at one time, going against the Lord, but the Lord changed us, amen? And how many of you are deeply affected by the Lord's change in your life? He just swept over you and he loves you so much. This morning, I know the Lord's speaking to some of us this morning that, that need forgiveness, that need to be changed deeply. And I, and I bet that, that some of you are just wrestling with your own flesh right now. Give up and give it to the Lord. Let him come in and sweep over you. Jesus Christ died to forgive you of your sin, of my sin, no matter how reprehensible it's been. He is his blood covers and forgives our sin. But not only that, he didn't die just to take away your sin and make you right with God. He rose again that you would now live for him, that you would put off the old and put on Christ. And when the world sees so-and-so, their life has changed. What a testimony to the world. You're it. You're the plan. Do you know that? You're the plan? Your life in the middle of the people that you know, you're God's plan for reaching those people. Isn't that awesome and scary? But as they see the truth lived out, man, it's amazing. Yes, preach the gospel. Do it. But when they do not believe the word, may they have no excuse because of how we live. Amen? (laughs) And so... May this be the gift of the world around you this Christmas, the life of Christ that is in you, the love, the humility, the compassion, the blessing in place of cursing. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for this fitting exhortation from your servant Peter, God, to the church. And here we are 2,000 years later, just in in need of more of the same. God, would you come into the hearts and minds of those this morning who have rejected you, who are in sin, who are overwhelmed by their guilt or whatever it might be, Lord. And would you, and if that's you this morning, call out to him now in your heart, cry out to him, say, God, forgive me, give me, uh, grant me repentance, forgive me and change me. And then turn away from that thing and turn towards Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, more of you in our hearts, more of you in our lives, more of you in our our, our words, in our spirit, in our actions, God, may we be lost in you. 
I pray that your word would become precious, not just so we know all the facts, but so we, we know you in your heart. Give us unity, not a false unity, but unity in the truth, unity in the spirit, Lord. Give us um, just compassion for one another, humility, and, and just a brotherly love for one another. God, all these things, would you just grant us these things? Forgive us, Lord, where we've fallen in. And now, Lord, as we go out, we trust in your work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In the name of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, we pray, amen.